Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. find a Bible and to turn to Matthew's Gospel. Like Will said, we're working our way through Matthew's Gospel. This morning we come wonderfully to the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Matthew chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 13 to 17, but we're going to read from verse 11. And you'll find that on page 808 in the Black Bibles or large print 961, 961 if you're using large print, 808 if you're using the Black Bibles. Let's pick it up, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, picking it up from verse 11. John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Amen. Let's pause. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, how glad we are to be here together this morning. We acknowledge that there are no accidents in life, that you are our Heavenly Father and we are your children. And so this very moment is pregnant with potential. Our very lives are in your hands. And so speak, we pray. Above all else, show us Christ, your Son, our Savior. In the power of the Spirit, we ask. Amen. You know the old song, don't you? Jesus loves me, this I know, for his baptism tells me so. Baptized ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. Did you ever sing that in Sunday school or to a nursing Baby, I I suspect not. I guess you sang this instead. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. So beautiful, isn't it? So true, so simple. There's a story that many, many years ago, a a student once asked the great Swiss German theologian Karl Barth on a tour of the United States, a man who had written volume after volume after volume of deep, profound theology. 
A student asked him if he could summarize his whole life's work in one sentence. Yes, he said, I can. I can summarize it in the words of a song I learned at my mother's knee. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's so true. The Bible tells us so because the Lord Jesus himself tells us so. Do you remember John chapter 15? As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Jesus loves me. He loves you. So when the Bible tells us that he loves us, what does that love look like? How do we know that he loves us? Well, what shape does that love take? I want to show you this morning with God's Word open together that that is what Christ's baptism is all about. I want us to listen to the three voices in what I read to us this morning, three voices that explain his baptism to us. Voice number one, listen to John the Baptist, verse 14. See him speaking. Listen, secondly, to the Lord Jesus himself, verse 15. And then finally, listen to the Father, the voice from heaven, verse 17. This is how Jesus loves us. You'll see the title for the sermon with apologies for the typo in it. This is how Jesus loves us. My guess is that if I were to ask you this morning, where do you see Christ's love for you? Well, where do we see it? You would point most naturally to the cross, wouldn't you? To the end of his life. Love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. There we have it, the Lord Jesus laying down his life on the cross. But what I want us to see together this morning is that that laying down of Jesus' life happens long before he is nailed to a cross, long before. It is there too at the beginning of his ministry. It's there too even in his birth, the laying down of his life. Remember I said a couple of weeks ago that the humiliation of the eternal Son entering a state of humiliation for us. That is not a single fixed moment on the cross. It is a line of descent that reaches its deepest, darkest place in the coldness of a borrowed tomb. But that downward line passes through the darkness of a virgin's womb. And if I can put it like this, as he descends downward, he adds to himself the Lord Jesus takes on to himself ever-increasing humiliation and sorrow. He takes more and more humiliation onto himself as he learns obedience through his suffering. And here this morning, that, that downward line passes through the waters of baptism, John's baptism, a baptism with water for repentance. It is a very strange incident. It is a stunningly beautiful moment. Three voices to listen to. Voice number one, listen to John. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him. Here's his voice saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? 
Friends, this morning, the, the first part of understanding why this is all about how Jesus loves us is feeling the surprise in John's question. Can you feel it? This is crucial. This is, this is key. The first thing to know about Jesus' own baptism is that surely there should have been no such thing as Jesus' baptism, right? Look at verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, because you're, you're dirty. You need to be washed. You need to say sorry. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Water for repentance, for, for sins. That's my baptism, says John. But coming next is someone who, look, look the dirtiest thing about him. His sandals are too holy for me to touch. I'm, I'm not even worthy to be his slave. He's mightier than I am. I give you water baptism. He gives you Holy Spirit and fire baptism. I give you the sign. He will give you the reality. And then verse 13, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Do you feel the shock? It's like watching one day on your television the world's greatest athlete in the Olympics winning the marathon and gaining the gold medal and being crowned the greatest athlete in the world, and they've smashed the two-hour two record. They've set a new world record, and the world is in awe. And then you turn up to Hazelhead Parker on the next Saturday, and there they are, waiting in line to run Hazelhead 5K, standing with you. You, you, you look at them, no, you're in the wrong, you're in the wrong place, the wrong race, you're, you're with the wrong people, look at us. And John is saying this mightiness, this mightiness is connected to his worthiness. Look, I'm not worthy to touch your sandals, let alone to put water on your body. Can you see what John is grappling here with? What do you have to be washed away Nothing. Nothing. Friends, if you like, here is one of the foundational things to learn in how Jesus loves us. He is, he is not the same as us. Here is a foundational thing to learn in how the Lord Jesus loves you this morning. He is not the same as you. It's what Matthew has been establishing so far for us, hasn't it? Jesus comes as one of us. He comes as a son in David's line. He is true man. He is one of us. And he is not the same as us. Think, think about it. Sometimes having the same as you is tremendous, isn't it? Somebody's got the same team. You're from the same country. You support the same team. You're wearing the same shoes. I thought I was the only one this stylish. Look at you. Amazing. Oh, oh you've got that problem as well with your kids. I, I've got that. You, you've cried over that problem as well as, as I have. That, that's amazing. I thought I was the only one. But sometimes having the same as you is the worst thing in the world. You, you pull onto the hard shoulder, with, hard shoulder with a puncture in your tire, and you wait and you wait, and a car pulls in behind you. Amazing, you think, and out gets the driver and says, oh, you've got a puncture. I've got a puncture too. 
Do you have a repair kit? You ask the stranger, no, do you? But we're the same. Are you with the AA? No, I'm not. We're stuck. And there you sit together at the roadside, the same, equally lost. You're drowning at sea and somebody jumps in to save you. Snap, they say to you, I'm here. Did you bring a life jacket? No. Let's just feel this moment together. We're twins. We're the same. No, brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus is one of us. And He is not the same as us precisely because of the reason He came to be one of us. Matthew has been teaching us, hasn't he, up to this point in chapter 3, teaching us that many things are necessary for the Lord Jesus to save us. Did you know, friends, the virgin birth of Christ is necessary for our salvation? It's not optional. It's not something to be maybe believed or partially believed if you're into that sort of thing. That Jesus Christ is born of a virgin is necessary for our salvation. His humanity is true. He really is human. But it is also new because his human nature is sanctified by the Spirit from the very moment of conception. And because of that, he is free from the guilt and curse of Adam's fall. He is a new Adam, the last Adam. And so you see, John the Baptist is able to look at him standing there on the riverbank beside him. He, he looks at him and says, you, you're one of us, but I'm not worthy of you. You, you are not the same. I, I'm down here and you're up there. Friends, it, it is part of how the Lord Jesus loves us that we come to see that truth. People who see who the Lord Jesus is and who know who he is are, what, did, what has John been telling us? They are repentant people, humble people. The, the more you see how mighty he is, the more you see who Jesus is, the more you see what you are like. And so the more you love him. A, a man called Archibald Alexander, mid-1800s, he used a very simple illustration he said this, imagine you're in a room and it is completely dark and the room that you are in is utterly filthy and there's just a little stream of light. It's hard to imagine on a day like this, isn't it, with light all around us, but imagine a tiny stream of light breaking into that room and because of the light that breaks in, you can see a little bit of the dirt on the floor. You, you know enough to know you're in a dirty room, but the more light that comes in, the more filth that you can see, the amount of dirt that you see is related to how much light you have. And the more light you have, the more you are going to see. That is the life of faith, isn't it? It is a, a constantly growing awareness of how unfit and how unworthy I am of ever being in Christ's kingdom. That the more light you have, the more you repent. That's why John the Baptist says at the start of chapter 3, repent. It's why Simon Peter, when, when he gets a grasp of who the Lord Jesus is, what does he say to him? Go away from me, Lord. Leave, leave me, for I am a sinful man. You know, Martin Luther, the famous 
reformer. Do you know what his first thesis was? He nailed 95 theses very famously to a door in Wittenberg. Do you know what his first thesis was, and do you know what his last words were at the end of his life? His first thesis nailed to the door was this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. It's what started the Reformation. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he didn't mean you did it once 30 years ago in a camp. He intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. Do you know what Martin Luther's last words were discovered, tucked on a piece of paper in his coat, on his, on his body? His last words were, we are beggars. This is true. Just think about it. People who do not know that that is true do not love the Lord Jesus. Isn't that right? People who don't know that's true about themselves do not love Him. No, you only love Him when you see that He loves us by showing us the truth about ourselves. And so, if that is what He is like, and John can see that that is what He is like, why has Jesus come to be baptized? Here's the question for us this morning. This is what I want us to climb inside. I'm going to stretch you a little bit this morning. Why? How on earth has he, has he come to be baptized? Isn't it strange? And so actually, as we listen to the second voice, the voice of the Lord Jesus, I want to listen to that voice in harmony with the third voice. Listen to the Father. Now, let's take that one first. Look at verse 17. Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. That, that, that adds to the surprise, doesn't it? How is God well pleased for the Holy Son, the one who baptizes with the Spirit and with fire, the one who purifies sinners, the one who, who, who will throw bad trees into the fire of unquenchable judgment? Why does the Son going into John's waters of baptism, and as He comes up and as the Father sends the Spirit and anoints Jesus with the Spirit, why does He say, this is the one in whom my soul takes pleasure? Have you ever thought of it? Why does the Spirit rest on Jesus after His baptism, and at that moment the Father says, this is the one who gets my highest praise? This is the one who thrills my soul. After Jesus does the same thing that sinners do. Really? This moment? So I want us just to listen to the voice of the Lord Jesus himself. Verse 15, it's all here in, in what he says. But Jesus answered John, let it be so now. Let it be so. Now, older translations say, suffer it, John. J -j -j just let it happen, John. Allow it, John. It, it's a kind of, that, that, that phrase, let it be so, it's a kind of concession, isn't it? J -j John, you're right. There, there is a sense in which I shouldn't be here, shouldn't be doing this, don't need to be doing this. And just notice something else as well. I want you to notice that the contrast between verse 6 and verse 13, just look back at verse 6. Everybody else 
is being baptized by John in the River Jordan. Look at this little phrase, confessing, confessing their sins. But now look at verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And that little phrase, confessing sin, is missing, isn't it? It's not there. So we're just being given the littlest of clues that because Jesus is one of us, it does not mean that he is the same as us and as he undergoes the same baptism as John and everybody else. Now, the, the meaning of this baptism for him is not completely the same as it is for us. And so here it is, friends. Here is the heart of it. Verse, verse 15. John, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. All righteousness. What I'm about to do what we're about to do together, John, what I will do and what you will do will fulfill all righteousness. That, that, that word righteousness, it, it means the conduct that God expects of his people. It, it refers to a life that does the will of God in every possible way, in every single area, and in every detail of every area. So, the, the, those Ten Commandments that we'll now remember for the rest of our lives because of Will's wonderful talk, our fingers will never be the same again, will they? The, the, those Ten Commandments that we, we said out loud together, imagine them. Here they are, God's will, God's law. This is what God wants. And the righteous life is the life that is wrapped around all of those things, the life that does every single one of those fingers perfectly, forever. That the, the righteous life is just full of God's law. His, his beautiful ways extend through every part of this life. They form the life. They fill the life. They shape the life. That the person who lives like this is righteous. The righteous person does what God wants all the time, without fail, without exception, every time. Never any single one of the Ten Commandments ever broken. That's why I've come, says Jesus. That's why I've come, to do that, to be the one that fulfills that. And you and me now, John, here on the river, it is right for us to do this because you baptizing me it's right, not because I'm here to offer to God confession for my sins. No, rather because I am here to offer to God the kind of humble, gentle, thankful, fruitful, obedient, never breaking a single commandment, holy life that is the kind of life God was always looking for. That's why I'm here. Friends, Jesus submitting to John's baptism is fulfilling all righteousness because he is saying to God, here I am. Here I am to live for you, to love you, and to offer to you the righteous life that Adam in the garden and then Israel were always meant to offer to you, but they failed. I want you to think of it this way. How does Jesus love us? And you say to me, John 15, he loves us by giving his life on the cross for us, by taking our place on the cross. Yes, but why does that work? 
Why is a substitution of him on the cross instead of me, instead of you, valid? Why is the death of the Lord Jesus an acceptable sacrifice in our place? For friends, here is the thing. Not all substitutions are valid. Not all substitutions are valid. Now, you know this if you follow football. Forgive the football illustration. 11 players on the pitch, and one is substituted off, and the substitute comes on, and he takes the place of somebody else who was on the pitch, wearing the same kit. He's on their team, takes their place, and he scores a hat-trick. The team win. And a week later, the match is written off and canceled, declared invalid, because they've investigated and discovered that even though he was a substitute, he was not qualified to play for that team. He was actually playing, belonged somewhere else for a different team. It happens in sport that the substitution takes place, but he is not allowed to represent that team for some reason, or she's not for some reason. Friends, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, his love for us at the end of his life, his substitutionary atoning death works because he is allowed to stand in for us, because he has represented us all his life long, and he has done nothing, nothing to ever disqualify himself from being our substitute. The Lord Jesus, at the end of his life, does not just substitute for us. He represents us. Do you remember what I said last week as we looked at the first part of chapter 3? What does Jesus want? Remember what I said? He wants repentance. All over chapter 3, isn't it? He wants his people to repent. But think about it. Why is that what he wants? He wants that because the world has gone wrong, hasn't it? The, the, the law that we, we did with the kids this morning, if Will had ended by saying, put your fingers down, and now when we've done all these 10 and we remember what they are, put your hand up, one hand, if you've kept them all. Well, I guess the fingers, we'd be sitting on them, wouldn't we, very quickly? The re- repentance is what God wants because that there, is, there is a chasm between us and Him. There is a gap between us and Him. And he, He's using the word repent, saying, come back to me. Turn around, come home, come back. But in the very beginning, friends, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, what did God want? Not repentance. What did God want at the very beginning? He didn't want repentance because there was no sin No, he wanted us instead to be fruitful, to fill the earth, to subdue the earth, to love him with heart, soul, mind, and strength. He wanted perfect harmony and unbroken relationship. Yes, God wants repentance now, but what's the deeper desire behind that, the greatest original desire? He wants the relationship that comes from obedience, doesn't he? We have a sense of this, don't we, in all our relationships. Think about it in somebody close to you. There is a fight, there's an argument, there's tears, and hopefully there's repentance, and harmony is restored. It's it's beautiful. You're back together again, but there is something even better than forgiveness, isn't there? It's simply the free-flowing joy and delight in each other without ever even having to say sorry at all. 
Forgiveness is great, yes, but better by far than tearful apologies is actually living as we ought to in the first place, enchanted with God and loving our neighbor as ourselves. What does 1 Samuel 15 tell us? To obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. I hope we can begin to glimpse something of the wonder of what is happening here as the Lord Jesus stands by the riverbank. What does what Hebrews chapter 10 say? The Lord Jesus came into the world and said to his Father, here I am. Here I am. I have come to do your will. I've come to live for you, Father. I've come to love you. I've come to love your law, to obey you. I have come to fulfill all righteousness. Friends, if I can put it like this, the Lord Jesus is saying in his baptism, in his baptism, he's saying, I have come to bear the fruit of repentance without ever having to repent. It's what what John is saying to people, isn't it? Chapter 3, bear bear fruit in keeping with repentance. There in verse 6, there in verse 10, bear fruit. Jesus is saying, I've come to bear the fruit of repentance without having ever to even repent in the first place. Fruit's interesting in the Bible, isn't it? John, John's fruit in verse 6 and verse 10. Do you know why John says that? Bear fruit, you Israelites. It's because in Isaiah, God says, my people are a vineyard. Israel is a vine, and since I planted that vine, all I've ever done is look for fruit. I want them to bear fruit. I want them to love me and love each other. You and I cannot bear fruit now without repenting, first of all. But when the Lord Jesus comes, he simply says, I am the vine. I am the vine. The true vine. I am the truly fruitful one. I've come to be the last Adam. God, I've come to be your true covenant partner. And so he takes his place on the riverbank with John. See, he's not saying, I need this because of sin in my life. No, he's saying, I'm going to do this to show people that what God always wanted was a life of total, humble, complete, joyful, obedient dependence on him. And and because humanity hasn't offered that back to God, I'm going to offer it to him. Jesus has come to stand in the place of sinners and to do what they should have done and to offer to God what he really wants, more than repentance, an obedient life. Why does the swap on the cross work? Why is Jesus able to take our place? Why does he say greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends? It's because at the end he has a perfect life to offer to God in place of my life, in place of your life. Here he says to his father, I've lived it. I've lived it for them. That's the baptism of Christ. He is offering his whole life to God, and as he does so, he stands in the place of sinners. Do you remember that lovely phrase in Isaiah, the servant song? Isaiah 53, he was numbered with the transgressors. 
He, he put his hand up. Not to say, I've broken the law, but to say, I'm here with them. Count me in with them. Not one of them himself, but numbered with them, included on the same list as them, standing in line for baptism with them. I want us to think of it this way. Next time you see a baptism here at the front at church, when you listen to those words, when somebody is baptized, the triune God is putting his name on the baptized person, isn't he? So it's what we say, we, we, we baptize people into, in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. B- baptism unites us to God, it, it joins us to him, and that means it unites God to us, to the baptized person. They, they, they leave this platform never the same again. They have God's name on them. He is theirs, and they are his. Baptism is a sign and seal of the members of the body being engrafted into the head of the body, being engrafted into Christ and of Christ taking these particular people into himself. Baptism is God's way of reaching down to you this morning and saying, you're mine. He's mine. She's mine. They're mine. They're mine. They're mine. I've I've put my name on them. They belong to me. And so it is here, friends. Jesus is numbering himself with us. You go go back to that marathon runner in Hazelhead Park. He's won the Olympic gold medal, and he's standing there in Hazelhead Park about to run the 5K, and you're scratching your head thinking, what on earth are you doing here with us? And then you see that the marathon runner has come with his five-year-old daughter, and she's running the park run. It's her first ever run, and he's going to run with her. She's doing it, so he's doing it, and he's going to come last today, the only time in his life he has ever come last in a race. And today, his mightiness up high on the podium, that mightiness will take a different form, for he's come to say, she is mine. I'm with her. I've come to serve her. Oh, the humility of Christ. Oh, the humility. Do you feel John's surprise? You, Lord, going under this water? This is how Jesus loves us. I love these words. I read them this week. A commentator said this, I I consider this incident Jesus' first miracle. The baptism of Jesus, I like to think of it as His first miracle. It is the miracle of His humility. The first thing Jesus does for the human race, think about it, the beginning of His public ministry, the very first thing He does for the human race is to go down with it, down into the deep waters of repentance and baptism. For Jesus' whole life will be like this. It is well known that He ends His ministry. He ends it on a cross between two thieves. But it deserves to be as well known that He begins His ministry in a river among sinners. From His baptism to His execution, the Lord Jesus stays low, at our level, identifying with us at every point, becoming as completely one with us in our humanity 
as it is possible to be. This is how he loves us. Oh, the humility. There's a man called John White, American or maybe Canadian author. And before he started writing books, he was a doctor. And John White tells the story of how as a medical student, when I was doing my medical studies, he said, I missed the class on sexually transmitted diseases. And so because I missed the class, I had to go on my own to the STD clinic. And I had to go one night at a time when students did not usually attend the clinic. As I entered the building, a male nurse I did not know met me. A line of men were waiting for treatment. I want to see the doctor, I said. That's what everybody wants. Stand in line. No, 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 you don't understand, John White said. I'm a medical student. Makes no difference. You got it the same way as everybody else. Stand in the line, the male nurse repeated. In the end, I managed to explain to him why I was there. But to this day, I can still feel the sense of shame that made me balk at standing in line with men who had venereal disease. Yet the Lord Jesus shunned shame as he stood to be baptized. And the moral gulf that separated him from us was far greater than that separating me from the other men at the clinic that evening. More than that, my dislike of venereal disease was as nothing compared with the Lord Jesus' utter abhorrence of sin. And yet he stood there. He crossed the gulf. He joined our ranks. He embraced us and still remained pure. He identified with those he came to save. Oh, the love. Oh, the love. And friends, this morning, oh, the joy. He is one of us. He is one of us. Your sorrows and griefs this morning, your cares, he knows them. And because he is one of, one of us, he did not read about them in a book. He, he knows them from the inside out the way that you know them. You, you know that feeling when you've, when you, when you've blown it somehow? You, you just sit there, don't you? And you stand there feeling completely alone. All you've got is your sin, the mistake you made. You've done it again. You're all alone. And the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ says to you this morning, look over your shoulder and see him standing with you. Standing in line with you, behind you. He is, he is numbered with you. He's, he's counted with you. Count me in with him, with her. That's how he loves us. But oh, the love. Oh, the love, for he is not the same as us. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. You know, Martin Luther said famously that on the cross, Jesus became the greatest sinner that ever was, as all the sins were laid upon his head, the sins of all the world. And on the cross at that moment, his fulfilling of all righteousness was complete. The work is done. It is finished. 
the sinners he has identified with, in that moment he now substitutes for and takes their place. Oh, the love. This is how the Lord Jesus loves us.